April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. I am proud to say that this episode is brought to you by a company whose inflatable rafts I've been using for nearly a decade. Watermaster boats have taken me on countless adventures when I've relied on portability and safety to get me from point A to point B. The Watermaster folds into an extremely compact package, and its frameless design allows for a complete assembly and disassembly in under 10 minutes. Whether it be for a simple day of fishing on a Skeena tributary, or a week-long flying trip in the remote mountains of BC, the Watermaster has always been the one tool necessary to make it all happen. I can't thank them enough for their support and quality service over the years. You can find them in the back of every serious steelheader's truck or at www.bigskyinflatables.com. Jeff Liske is one of the fishiest people I have ever met. Guide, instructor, Patagonia ambassador, and all-around talented angler, I met with Jeff in Ohio to see if I could tap into his wiring. really feel like you are one of the most underrated and unknown anglers in the fly fishing world and I think you probably want to keep it that way but I'm not going to let you. So where were you born and raised? South shores of Lake Erie. Basically northern Ohio. So you're an Ohio boy through and through. Yes. Because you still live in Ohio. I do. So where does fishing begin? When, When did you start fishing? Um, started fishing right around, seriously, around 11 years old. Okay, did your dad fish? He did not. Uh, he was very supportive. He would drop me off for the day. Probably would get arrested for what I, he would do. Like, he would just drop me off and pick me up, like, 10 hours later. At 11? Yeah. Wow, okay, and what did your mom think of this? She didn't think much of it. It's a lot different back then, you know. So, yeah. but yeah, fished all day. But I started really uh, working at a small tackle bait shop. okay. And then it was just pretty much from every day after school, fished. Wow, okay. And were you starting off with fly fishing or did you fish conventional? All conventional gear. I think it was a good stepping stone, but it was all conventional. Yeah, I mean, I'm the same as you. I started conventional and learned fish behavior by fishing that way. I think it gives confidence now. I think a lot of fly anglers are like, if they started fly fishing, sometimes they don't have the confidence of like, are they doing it right? Yeah. But is it conventional gear? I have a lot more confidence, like, all right, I'm going to do something right. Did you have any siblings who fished with you? Nope. Okay. What were your stomping grounds at 11 years old when your dad was dropping you off? So it would be the south shores of Lake Erie, the piers that are adjacent and ran into the rivers. And uh, my home river was Rocky River. Okay. So born and raised right in that area there. So that was my stomping grounds, Rocky River, Ohio. Okay. So then you start working at the bait shop. Yep. And dipping minnows. Okay, all yeah, right. You know, the typical dipping minnows and selling spinners and just like, all right, I think I'm wanting to do this thing a little more. Were you just totally obsessed back then? No, probably not. Because you know, you're, you go you're up obsessed and... now. Really? Yeah, I mean, that is an under... You, anyone who doesn't know you right now is going, ooh, what is, like, does this guy fish a lot? Does he fish a little? Everybody who knows you is like obsessed is a complete understatement. The man is insane. You think you're obsessed, Yeah. At this point now, yes. Yeah. 
you're kind of the opposite. A lot of people start off where that's all that they can think about is, is of course, going fishing. And then they kind of mellow out as they get older. But you've gone in the opposite direction. Maybe thanks to fly fishing. Maybe they don't close the loop. Mm. When they start with conventional gear, it's like, oh, yeah, I got that covered. But at a certain point in time, you're like, all right, I got this. So you should probably advance to fly fishing. Yeah. And then eventually, like I did, close a circle with the spay. And at that point, you're not ever, you're never going to master it. Never. No, and you, and that's, I think, all part of the fun is, yes. of course, knowing that. Yes. So walk me through the timeline then. So when I was about 16, I uh, would do the summers in Michigan, and we would trout fish. And then true fly fishing, you know, I would still give it up. I mean, I'd do some trout fishing, and, but I would still pick up the gear rod as a crutch and then dabble in it. Then when steelhead started really becoming my passion, you know, uh, at that point I did it. But it wasn't like the traditional fly fishing. You know, that's one thing about Great Lakes, guys. You know, we get, you know, duck and chuck and all those type of techniques. It wasn't really truly fly fishing, but that's what we have. We took advantage of it. You know, so I was always looking for something that was more challenging. And I think I finally found it the last 15 years. I think I really did with this whole spay thing. Are you, are you still looking for something that's more challenging? I think I found it. And that's the spay fishing? I think so. I, I actually think no matter, I mean, what, 10,000 hours to be a master? I don't think I'll ever master it. I think that the amount that you fish, you will. So what happens when you do? What do you think is the next step? Surely there's a next step beyond spay fishing. For me? For anybody. For anybody? So what about just the casting part? Can you master all three styles of casting? Ooh, I don't know. See? I'm going to try. Me but, too. But no, I, I, I'm on the same page as you. I just like to challenge you a little bit here. I'm always trying to stay on the cutting edge. It's like whatever, whatever I think would be the most difficult or any new water. Because mm-hmm. I think that's what, that's what we all have the driven passion for is like, What's around the next corner? Yeah. If you take the boat, it's like, oh, is there, is there a better spot? Or is there a canyon? What is there? So I think that's the driving force for me of fishing, too. For you. Yeah, not for everybody. I'm going to say after fishing the Bulkley and having 50 guys in one stretch of water from quick down to my place, I'm going to say that the, the goal is not necessarily exploration or... Um, mystery for everybody. For some people, it's really just either A, about getting on the water, or B, catching fish. I'm going to put you in a unique category of people who really gets off on the adventure and the the drive of trying to see what else is out there. I mean, is that is that accurate? So let's just take that same thing. So it's a crowded river, yeah. say, in and around Talquita Quick or something like that. So that day, the challenge would be angling pressure. But would you go somewhere else? If I had a choice, but if you're already committed... That day, you're, 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 you're suited to, to make that accomplishment happen, angling pressure. But that's also a large part of, I mean, I'm proud to call you my friend. Right. And you're one of those guys who is so optimistic. But guess what? What? They all give up like two hours before dark. <laughs> yeah. And so I get like my last, oh, dark 30 shot at them. And I know that because they're not all that driven. They're all going to go in for supper. And it's like, oh, I'll get, I'll get my water. Okay, so do you think you get off more on on the challenge of fishing, or do you think you get off more on the exploration aspect? I would have to say the exploration at this point. Okay. I think it goes in steps. First it was the catching, mm-hmm. now I think it's exploration now, yes, absolutely. Okay, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast with you, because 
that exploration for me anyway, as selfishly, that for me is a hundred percent why I'm into it these days. I've done a circle in that I started by wanting to explore and get off the grid and be in a little bit of danger and try to explore this new water where there's no one around. And I've kind of circled back to that now where that's what drives me. So I want to talk about your wiring. Can I do that? Sure. Just, I need to, your timeline to understand a little more. So during the whole gear process, you know, ran a charter boat like everybody else does, you know, and at the time, because let's face it, Ohio is not a premier fly fishing destination. So you have to sort of make do with what you have. And uh, so you basically start out, you know, running a big boat on the lakes and you're running for walleyes and perch and salmon and stuff. And then eventually we're in tournaments, got to, you know, competitive fishing tournaments. But you, you did that? Sure. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So, but didn't like that. Yeah, I did it for a while. Did okay. But that wasn't, evidently that wasn't the magic key that I was looking for. Why do you think, looking back now? Uh, I think tournaments, there's... There's always something. There's always something corrupt about a tournament. There's always somebody cheating, and there's just so much backstab. That's just not. That's just not for me. And there's money involved in tournaments. There's money involved when you have money. That changes everything. It changes everything. It just totally was like yeah, not for me. Even now, I would like never even yeah. think about it. Yeah, you don't. I can't see you doing tournaments today. You have to try some though every time, though, right? Sure, sure. Why not try it to know that yeah. you don't like it? Right. Okay. So then, where do you start going in this industry? So after first main, get my charbo captain's license, I started um, working for gear companies at sports shows and working at retail, fly, you know, gear shops because there's not many fly shops in Ireland. And basically got into the retail part, working there, doing consumer shows, you know, doing seminars, and then eventually just kept going up a road. And sometimes the road was like, you know, had a roadblock and didn't like it or. It was real rough, and you got your teeth rattled out. Mm-hmm. And it was like, ah, this ain't it. Yeah. Then eventually, I came to, you know, like, you know, I'm just going to go in full tilt fly fishing. Yeah. And that uh, was a good stepping stone, and I love fly fishing. But then about 15 years ago, I met uh, one of my mentors, Neil Holding, and it was like, he taught me to start a casting spay, and then after that, I just never looked back. Him and Rick Warwood never looked back now since. Were you guiding? Were you done guiding at that point? No, I'm still guiding. I'm still, so it's guiding then. So at this point, I started guiding right around 78. Oh my gosh, okay. And so after still guiding today, I'm not aggressively guiding like I was. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nothing to do with patience, nothing like that. I think it's just a matter of me wanting to put the rod in my hand more. If you get day after day where you're like, it's really challenging guiding, but... I think it's time for me to start fishing again and improve my skills. Mm-hmm. I think that's really why I wanted to get out of it. After. Not out of it, but not as aggressively. Talk to me about the small things. I always try to explain to people, it's the little things that make the difference. If there's a seam and the water slows, I'll, I'll angle my rod tip upstream just slightly and then kind of um, side drift my fly down through a run. You had a different word for that. What did you call that? Boondogging. Boondogging. That's what it is. Okay. Talk to me about boondogging. For somebody who's listening to this right now and they have no idea what either of us is talking about, can you just explain what that is? So let's just talk a little bit about water temperature. Let's do it. This is the Mr. Steelhead, right? What's the what's the most important thing to have? It's water temperature, right? We all love to say that we like catch them on top on a dry fly, but mm-hmm. guess what? Most of the time they don't come in dry. It's too cold, yeah. especially in the Great Lakes. The water temperature is always cold, or even but- in BC. What's the average water temperature out here? 
So we have very strong runs. It starts in like the 50 degrees, but it drops very quickly into the low 40s and high 30s, very quickly. Okay. So it's basically just called force feeding them. And then they have to be in really slow, tanky water on the edges. But if you step into the fly, so let's just dictate that, as you're swinging the fly and you know you're in the sweet spot, you could lower your rod, you could step into the fly, which means once you step into it, you're basically stalling it, killing it. Fish has a little more time in the sweet spot. And then when it re-engages to the head, if materials close back up, and usually something magical happens. So you're talking about fishing a fly, like a marabou fly, or some sort of intruder variation that really undulates and pulsates as it goes through the current. Correct. And then you're saying that when the fly then stalls or or slows, those materials stop from splaying and they close, and that entices the fish to take? I think it's mainly the speed. Okay. You know, like we're just giving them more opportunity. Let's face it, they can't chase it with water temperature being cold. Well, some people say, and I have actually found with my own fishing, that about 54 to 56 degrees, there is a change in fish behavior. Have you found that? Have you found that there's a, a particular temperature where things start to change with their, their aggression? Well, so let's take, so for a Great Lakes guy, it would be 40 degrees. Wow. Slush in the morning, and then it'll burn off in the afternoon, and it's a catalyst. Okay. So it might warm up from 33 and a half to 34 and it's like magic. Like you won't get a, you won't get very little pulls. You won't even notice a steelhead around. And just that little two-hour window, you could get some like results that there's steelhead around. Where before you're like, no, no way. It, it's just totally different. Now, is it a yank out of your hand? No. It's just that soft tension pull. He just latched. He's a hitchhiking on. He's basically hitchhiking on. But at least you're swinging a fly. Yeah, because you're pretty hell-bent on swinging these days. Pretty much. Talk to me about force-feeding. When I hear something like that, it makes me cringe. Tell the West Coast snob why force-feeding any fish in any manner should not make me cringe. Okay, so basically, you really want a fish to be aggressive. Yes, I would love it. You know, nice broadside swing, fly's got plenty of chase to it, rod just rips out of your hand, but the steelhead can't do that. So you have to give them every opportunity to get on your fly. So force feeding means basically is that you're just giving him and you're putting it in his wheelhouse right on the dinner plate, but you're basically stalling it for his metabolism to move to it, to latch onto it. Is it fair? Is there any sort of repercussion or damage to them biologically by fighting uh, when they're so cold? I mean, I know that's kind of a silly question, but for example, if a fish on a red is exhausted, I'm not going to fish for that fish because it's not good for the fish. Is it the same thing in cold water? Actually, it probably released better because, so when we draw the line, so I never, you you don't fish for them on the reds, and when the water temperature is, say, 67 or more, it's just bad for them. You can't revive them. Right. But on the other end, when it's super cold, they really don't fight really well. But we don't, we're pretty much that choice that we have to fish for with that water temperature. And so they don't fight real hard, and they basically just are really lethargic, and you get them in, and they just release very well. And if there's any, there's no worries about deep hooking or, you know, when you say, maybe, let's yeah. clarify, deep, let's say force feeding, maybe you're like, we're not talking flossing, we're not talking any of that Great lake stuff. So we're just talking basically that it's, the, the fly is going to barely get on it. 
barely get out. You'd be a tube fly with a with a with a stinger way back. Not even that. It's just maybe a smaller fly, main thing. Okay. What else do you do out there that might be a little bit different than most? Do you fish fast? Like do you do you take ten steps between each cast? I mean, pretend that you are pretty sure there's a fish there. Do you fish that run fast and then leave or fast and then go through again with a different fly? Or do you fish it slow? Knowing that the little, you know, basically it's like open book, open book fishing. But even in, even in British Columbia, if, you know, if you know the sweet spot, I'll go from, say, a good two, three steps. And then as long as there's not, if you're fishing by yourself, I'll throw the anchor out a little bit and I'll maybe give it a, a couple of one or two steps, a little slower in the, in the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. And then I'll pick the pace back up. And when you say you're going to throw your anchor out, there's three ways we can take that. You mean you just slow down? Slow down, yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, basically drop the hook. I'm going, to sl- I'm going to slow my progression down the run a little bit. Just, just but if I have a partner with me, I'm just going to keep motoring through. I'm not going to stall up and you know wait. He's, he's mathematically going to catch the fish behind me if I screw up. But, uh, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about maybe percentage. So, like, if you're about wade line or, like, if you're fishing down a run and you say, well, if somebody goes down first, if they can't, if their casting skills are not maybe as yours is, they can't quite get to the middle of the river and the river's low and clear, then, you you know, you could do a little more aggressive wade line because you're behind them or if you can cast farther, you can catch those fish that are a little farther out mm-hmm. and some of the you know, out-firing lies around a rock or something. But the main thing is that I found swinging a fly is, is that the water temperature pretty much dictates where they can grab the fly. Oh, do tell. What do you mean? So basically... Like if, as it, whether they're close to shore or not? No. How far away are they from the seam? Okay. I, please, please elaborate. I'm- so if the water temperature is, say, let's just go extreme. So if the water temperature is extreme for us, mm-hmm. it would be 30, say 34 to say 36. Wow, that's extreme. Yeah, so they're like beyond the couchy water. They're in the, like the super tanky water. They're in troughs at this point. They're just so slow. They're in can- the back ends of the canyons, and it's almost to the point where your fly won't swing. But let's face it, that's where they have to be because their metabolism's so cold, and it's so slow that they can't get near the seam. So right away, I don't even fish. I throw the cast maybe in the current, but full well knowing the only place they're going to be is in that there. So I set the tip up and set up everything for just the 10-foot window. When the water's really super warm, I set my tip up just for the super fast water and don't worry about anything else. I mean, I know that winter steelheads sit in trophy water. I understand biologically all, all of that, but I... I still always fish those seams. Maybe it's subconsciously just hoping there's one there. Have you caught him in that water temperature on the seam? You know, not well. First of all, there's very few times of year when I will fish that that cold. But that's what I'm sitting here listening to you and thinking about. Not really. Not really. I mean, there are times like I fish rivers in November when they're when it's icy when my guides are freezing up, and I've caught them on dry flies. Then it happens. But guiding, especially when I'm on the water every day for winter steelhead, no. No, it doesn't happen. And, and we do get them more in these slow tanks. I mean, you fish the whole, we fish the whole run for the most part, and we do fish that seam in the, in the run. But it is that trophy drop sometimes in the back or that slow side 
that does seem to hold the fish. Every time. Unless they're fresh. Unless, and, and I think that's the main difference is I am taking people and myself to those fresh fish. Right. Well, that makes a big difference. So if it's fresh, yes, it could be near the seam, but the staler fish and the bulk of the run that's in mm-hmm. will be in that tanky, trophy, slow water. And as the water warms up, they gravitate to the seam. So everything you're doing, if it's warmer water, you're fishing tight to the seam or right in that main current, yeah, you're throwing way out, doing a big pullback, pullback man, big tip, and just jack it right down in there. And if it's wintertime, you got to go, even though your fly is way up high in the fast current, let's face it, once it tanks, it's over. So you're fishing a super light tip in the winter because you only know you're fishing 10 foot of that slow water at the very end. Everything else is smoke and mirrors. Interesting. Now, where do you draw the line on ethics? Is it unethical to fish for those fish who are stacked up and trying to just have a little bit of solitude? Depends where I'm fishing. You know, if they're hatchery fish, probably not. But you don't catch enough of them. I think it's just a way for us to gain our sanity to, like, basically fish and still swing a fly. But I think mainly it's stemmed from the Great Lakes here is that we are, we probably have three months of winter hardcore steelheading here. Three months, and the water temperature is cold. And I, I haven't seen any repercussions. I've never said like, I've actually had some pretty good days. We get you know a couple, two, three fish in the winter time. So, generally, it's no fish, <laughs> but uh, you do get quite a few good days. I don't think so. That'd be a good question. What do you think? Um, I think, I think in BC, it really depends on where you are and how far up in that tributary you're fishing. Okay. So if you're fishing a winter stream, and as you know, winter fish typically dominate tributaries within 100 miles or so of the ocean, I don't think they're quite as spent. And so I don't mind fishing for a winter steelhead in water like that because I know they haven't, even though they're full of eggs or sperm and they're mature, I don't feel as guilty knowing that they haven't made a crazy long trek. If I'm fishing a summer run fish who has been in the system for quite some time and they're way up high in the system... I typically leave those fish alone. That's a good point. I've never fished there in the winter. I've always fished early, early. Yeah, and, and, and just people who fish in BC are thinking, that damn April Loki, she's fishing for kelts. I'm not talking about kelts. I'm talking about, like, the Kispioks. Oh, absolutely not. In November, I'm just, I'm probably going to leave those fish alone. And a lot of it has to depend, you know, depends on how, how much pressure they're getting. Are they getting pink worms tossed over them all day long? So it's really fishery dependent for me personally. I agree. That would be perfectly legit. Yeah, I've never fished there. I probably would not go that late because they are, they're pretty spent by that yeah. time. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that's why I feel. So how many days a year do you think you fish? And I hate that question, but with you, I genuinely am fascinated by the amount of time that you're on the water. I try to at least, I'm not saying all day, but I try to at least <laughs> be on the water over 200 days. Yeah. 200, 250 days. I try to. Sometimes it's only for a few, you know, an hour or two or three or four, not all day, but I try to at least get onto some piece of water every day. Yeah, that sounds right for you. (laughs) It does. I mean, you are out there all the time. Let's talk about flies. Okay. Okay. Do you think that your fly actually matters? Hmm, good question. I would have to say the flies disposition size and contrast is the only thing that matters if i if you told me jeff if you gave me one pattern but you gave it to me in three sizes i would take that over 
five different flies. Do you think that fly size has anything to do with how fast your swing should be? Sure. So how fast a swing should be, sometimes angling pressure. Because most of the time, I think we, the, the sport that we love the most is getting a lot of pressure put on it. Let's face it. And, you know, I really feel guilty myself. It's like, oh, my gosh, look at, I'm part of this whole mad, madness going on. Mm-hmm. But I will say, you know, downsize your size, you know, flies in the spring for sure. Downsize your flies after a bunch of angling pressure, you're going to catch fish. There's no doubt. In the swing speed, so it depends on the water temperature again. The chase to the fly, so many anglers think, and, and I think this is the guilty of Great Lakes guys, is they think that your fly has to go so slow. Sometimes you need to like put the chase to it to make it happen. And I think, you know, Great Lakes guys, like I said, we're like, you know, months of cold, winter, deep swung flies. Well, you go out BC, you go out west, and let me, these fish are, you don't need sink tips. You can use floating lines, scanning lines. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And they haven't experienced that yet. Yeah. And, but, so, but I mean, yeah, you put a huge chase to the fly. Small fly, big chase. And it just, it just turns their crank. I heard a theory that your fly size depends on the speed of the water. For example, imagine there's a big white rock on your dangle in the water. And your fly has reached the dangle, and you can see it hovering over top of that rock. And the water speed is seven kilometers an hour. What speed is that fly traveling if the water is going seven kilometers an hour and it's hovering above that rock? What speed is the fly on a dangle? Mm -hmm. Swimming speed? Mm -hmm. You tell me, that's a good one. I think, now I'm no mathematician, but I think it's the same speed, so it's about seven kilometers. I think so. Sounds sounds, sounds pretty right. legit. Yeah. yeah. So one of the theories in the Atlantic salmon world is that if a fly is, say, one inch long, you have to ask yourself if as an insect or a leech or a, a tra- whatever it is that you're fishing, could that one inch creature swing and move through the water at seven kilometers? Could it move at that speed? So some of the guys in the Atlantic salmon world, if the water is fast will fish a larger fly, not only to penetrate the water surface, but to match what natural life could actually swim through the current at seven kilometers an hour. Do you think that that's just us overthinking things because we have nothing else to do in the winter? Or can you see any merit in that philosophy? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say there could be merit, but I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go to that theory. I would have to say that the bigger fly and the faster water give them a bigger profile that they could see it and get on it right away. That would be my take on that. Do you ever swing eggs? Just eggs? I never have, but I did do an experiment this year. Let's hear it. So we swinging, 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 and we had some type of egg-sucking leech pattern. And it was a very good day, and the fish were active. So it was a good day to experiment. And that's one good thing that Great Lakes guys have. We have this living platform of learning that we have tons of steelhead. So when the fishing's good, we can really experiment. We're go to BC, it's like on my day 11, <laughs> it's like, or West Coast, I'm like day four, it's like, I think there's a steelhead somewhere on this state. Yeah. It ain't me, though. <laughs> Province. But, yeah. So we're here, we're going to go for it. But Great Lakes, we do have, you know, bigger numbers. But, so we caught a couple fish, and I said, well, 
Watch this. So what we did was we took the same leech and we just swung an egg pattern and he caught another fish. And he's looking at me and I pretty much told him it was the contrast, the color and the contrast that was catching the fish. Everything else from the back of the leech head back was all smoke and mirrors. Mm. And he's like, you could have probably did that all day. But we have runoff rivers. You know, we have basically, it's just a sight feeding thing. It's like, it could go from three inches of visibility to unlimited within four days. So things are here is a little different in the Great Lakes. Some are always clear. So it's, it's remarkable what the Great Lakes have to offer. You'll never fish at all in your life. I still, I've almost fished every one, but you forget of how challenging some it is from Lake Superior all the way down. But I've never like said, hey, I'm going to swing eggs today. <laughs> no, <Yeah. laughs> no, I haven't have did, no. Do you know that a lot of BC guides guide with eggs, just eggs, and have their clients swing just eggs, but nobody talks about it? Well then, and I would imagine they do really, really well. They do stupid well. And you're not looking at one of those guys, I got to say. Do they put weight with them? I don't know. I, that's a great question. I don't know. I Do think they put, like, the typical, like, lead eyes or barbell eyes with their eggs and, like, really get dirty? They won't let me see them. Well, of course not. That's dirty. Yeah, I'm not kidding. They will not let me see them. But uh, it would not surprise me if they did. So what's a guide's report card, though? How so? So if you were a BC guide or Ohio guide, Michigan guide, doesn't matter, what, what, Washington, Oregon, what's the guide's report card? Like, what are they reporting to the government at the end of the year? No. You mean what At the she... end of the day... Oh, to catch fish. Exactly. Of course. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When your client on Monday morning goes to the cubicle, yeah. everybody doesn't say, Hey, <laughs> did you have a beautiful scenery of the mountains? <laughs> no, they say, show me the fish porn. Yeah. I, that's terrible. I yeah. hate that. <laughs> I know you do. So... You're but, going to get skunked right now, so let's get this over with. But it puts into, it puts into perspective, maybe they don't care about water speed. Because an egg doesn't swim itself through the current. Exactly right. And uh, last I checked, they weren't dead drifting them. They're, they're swinging them. So you can swing nymphs. So like when we have really low water conditions, I'll do what's called like, you can say what you want. And we're going to get probably bashed by Great Lakes. We would do like spay bugging. What's a spay bug? So you can swing a buggy fly. Everybody wants to go intruder and like flash. Like I'm not a really big flashy guy. They do now. It didn't. Yeah, it wasn't like that that long ago. True. But so after all the angling pressure, and you got to, you know, if you're following up bait guys or gear guys, sometimes just a good old fashioned buggy looking, very small buggy looking fly, even like a hex, articulating hex. Tied space style. Okay, so you're talking trout flies here. Yeah, yeah, trout flies, but basically, because it's still not a big trout. What do you mean by, what is a space style? So basically, rather than using, say, you know, just hackle, you can use, you know, you could use spay hackle. Make it little, you know, big webbier type materials, a little bigger, a little more movement, but sparse and a little smaller, just a little buggy, and that's usually the go-to for me. Like, like right now, we have no water. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, side note, interesting fact I've learned recently, and I don't. you might know this. Do you know, just for my listener, what a spay fly is? What a true, the true definition of a I spay do not. Fly is? I know it's interesting, isn't it? We all, for so long, a lot of people out here seem to think that if it's cast on a spay rod or a double hand rod, that it's technically a spay fly, which would make an intruder a spay fly, which is, of course, hilarious. 
So a lot of other people think that a spay fly is uh, like tinted mallard wings. Okay. I know that that's what I thought for the longest time. But there's a, there's a number of variables that make up a true spay fly. So I'm only if you're interested in hearing I'm, this. I'm like, now you got my interest. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, one, it must have been invented on the Spay River by those guys in like the 19th century. So that pretty much limits So there's basically no more new spay flies. Or okay. There's no new spay flies. Okay. It is the only fly really where the hackle is tied in by the butt rather than by the tip. Because back in the day, they used a lot of spaycock. So the spaycock was tied in by the butt. So the webbier bits were, or the longer bits were, down by the curvature of the shank. Whereas if they did use heron, it was tied in by the tip. But mostly their hackles were tied in by the butt, not the tip. The third thing is that all spay flies have got to be counter-ribbed with, with a wire or something similar to keep everything trapped down. They almost always have a sparse body, and they've got at least two pieces of tinsel. So they'll have like a flat tinsel and a an oval tinsel or, or something of the sort. And that is a true spay fly. That's why if you really look at the Lady Caroline, you'll see that it has all of those characteristics. So it didn't necessarily have to have tented mallard wings. It just had to have all of those other characteristics. Isn't that interesting? Coming up, Jeff and I dive into more fishing talk, including dry fly fishing in the Great Lakes tributaries. Again, thank you to Watermaster for making this episode possible. From safe wading to accessible fishing, lightweight transport to reliable rafting, now they've also come through for us here on Anchored. Please check them out at www.bigskyinflatables.com. When did you notice a big change out here as far as acceptance goes with the double hand rod? I think a lot of it was um, the next level of challenge. Let's face it, the Midwest, it takes like three baseball bats and 25 years to get on like the new trend. Okay, why? It's just, I think just the way it is, the rust belt and all, it's just the way it always has been. It, it takes like this proven thing to generate the new interest but um but once it does it goes but so 15 years ago it for rick warward and neil holy myself it took me everything i had to muster up five guys that would even pick up spay rod up you go through the cycles of steel headers and it was just like guys were just like wanting to catch one and they weren't ready for that challenge yet right now um, we've been through a couple of generations, and now I think everybody's like, well, we have this crutch, we have an indicator, we have our gear rod that we started with, but all right, I, I, I'm either going to get out of steelhead fishing or make it more challenging. Yeah. And I think that's the point we are. Sad to say it's taken this long. And we have so many great mentors from everybody from the West Coast and British Columbia. They have, they've did all this work and all this homework, and the only thing I really do is just copy off everybody, pretty much. I copy their flies, I copy their casting, but I do bring it and offer it to the Great Lakes in my area. And then, of course, it's it, it just streams real well because it just continues the fly fishing community. And some guys like it, some guys don't. But I really not, like, yeah, it's great to have a two-handed rod. So let's just talk about, we don't even, like, don't need a two-handed rod to spay cast. That's been no. my main focal point is, like, 
That's why they're not called spay rods. They're called double-handed rods because yeah. the spay is a cast, not a rod. Right. And everybody's like, you guys can just learn how to make a spay cast with your trout rod. Mm-hmm. It's very important. And now that that mindset over the last three or four years have came about, I think a lot, a lot more anglers are really starting to engage. Because they were like, oh, i got to buy this giant 15-foot rod. And it was just not enough good information. And it's, everybody now in the last five or six years knows, knows that there's great resources. And I think that's really why it's engaged a whole lot, too. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that getting information out of you like this can be difficult. So I don't want to put you in a position. And you do not need to tell me where you've been fishing. But, Jeff, you showed me a video tonight of a steelhead in some river out here absolutely smashing one of your dry flies. I mean, straight out of the water, crashed it. What's going on? Talk to me about this dry fly thing out here. So I think it took so long to like get the whole two-handed spay thing going here. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a cultivation of a guy willing to accept that he's not going to catch a fish, first off. Mm-hmm. And, it, and all the conditions have to be variable. So I get about 9 to 13 a year. And I could probably do more, but it our, our, depends on the windows of opportunity. What is the window of opportunity out here? So first thing you have to probably put is unlimited visibility, which is very tough because we have runoff rivers. Um, so unlimited visibility, first, where they can see it from top to bottom. They have to be able to see it. So it's not like BC where all you need is 18 inches of visibility. No. Okay. No. Why? Because maybe, A, because I've tried it and I've never caught one under any other condition. Okay. And coming from you, that holds merit to me. And then the next would be um, water temperature is very important. So generally speaking, we have um, the two highest times of catching would be if you, you're here right during the leaf hatch. Oh, is that what you call it? So the leaf hatch. So you catch them before the leaf hatch. And you mean falling leaves? Falling leaves. So you have okay. to catch them when the first entry of steelhead before the water gets real tannin. So you're October. And then after the tannin, if Mother Nature's really kind, we'll have about 10-day window where it'll be really good fishing because the tannin's gone. So what's interesting about runoff rivers is the tannin will dissipate as the water table comes up and it flushes because they're runoff rivers and yeah. they flush out and then... Right after that, it's game on. A steelhead are in, and if we catch the window where the water temperatures are right, it, you, you could have a very successful day. If you want to call it skating, if you want to call it dead drifting, whatever you want to do it, you, you stay at a high probability. But you're skating. I do ball. I just want to catch, I love catching fish that eat on top. If you can get them to go trouty, so the first thing I do is after, def- everybody knows after first one or two, three casts, you know what's going to happen. So what happens is that over the experiences, you'll see them get real trouty. If one will even remotely look, the others will start getting trouty. And I can see that. It's a school mentality. Well, yeah, it's a school mentality, but it's, I think it's, it too is it's the cast presentation reaction. I confirm that I have a player. One goes, and all of a sudden they're like the pack, just like you said. And it's like, oh. And then a third cast or second cast, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But you have to cast way beyond their peripheral vision. So you have to cast way beyond. Even though you love to drop one on their head, you can't. You have to way beyond them and bring it the cat and mouse thing. You have to put it in their awareness zone. And then once they see it and they 
dissipate and as soon as it breaks out of their other awareness zone, how their other peripheral zones when they snap. Yeah, I guess you're it's really finicky if you have to have clear water. You do. Because they don't you know, we don't have the wild fish that, you know, take three to five years in the system and feeding on anything that lives. Here it's put them in hatchery fish, but we have wild fish here. Yeah. And and I'm not saying the ones I'm not catching aren't the wild fish. Because right. we have no documentation. You can't tell, right? I cannot. It's not like it's not like wild. Be- I mean, I, we know every me and you. We know every fish that comes out of every river, don't we? <laughs> they all have their own little faces. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. They have their own characteristics. They do. For sure. Well, here they do too, a little bit. But I haven't. This is my six-year dry fly fishing, serious dry fly fishing. Yeah. And uh, but in angling pressure, of course, they can be unmolested. Of course, yeah. But I did disprove one thing. Everybody thinks that you can't dry fly first. It'd be nice to say. You fish to dry fly, then I'll come through with a tip. Yeah. My recommendations are any Great Lakes guys would be, you know, if you're in doubt, throw a dry fly for five, ten minutes and then put a tip on if you had to. Why not? What's it going to hurt? Fifteen minutes of your life for one hole? What the heck? I know. They just don't want to re-rig their rods. Okay, buy two rods. And that's what people do. The, my buddies have two rods. Sure. We have our guests set up with two rods. Yeah. You have to. You have to have the mindset that give it a shot. Yeah. But once you do make it happen... You know what the answer is. Yeah, yeah. Well, once you catch, I tell people this, you know, you forget the fish that you've caught on wet flies eventually when you've caught enough, but you never forget your dry fly fish. Never. No. Never. Even the ones who don't hook up, just the takes you don't forget. And I'll go back for them too. Yeah. They're angry fish. So what kind of fly, talk to me about the flies you're you're using if if you can. I can't. So, um, I haven't really found a preference of flies. It's mainly a player. But what about, I mean, at home I know we use a lot of bright pink foam bodies. Would, okay. Would you stay troutier here? Yes. Oh, yes. Definitely. Okay. Yes. That would make it tough. Yeah. So, it would be definitely foam because it's just easier. You don't have to, like, shed the water. But it would be foam on a smaller scale. Um, but the blacks and the subtle colors, black tans work. Mm-hmm. I've tried red. Red works once in a while. Red's been a favorite. Yeah, so do you believe in dark day, dark fly, bright day, bright fly? I still go by that, but yeah. it's proven me wrong many of times. Okay. <gasps> yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, so I was like, what, are you kidding me? I thought I had this, this game down. Yeah. Okay, so you do get to watch fish behavior a lot. A, like, a lot. Okay, so what do you see fish move around? What do you see fish get freaked out by and, and try to move away from. You start to cast on top of their head. Okay, so that's one. Hey, you, I mean, you laugh because you think that we all know that, but there's a lot of people who who think, well, I see these guys spay fishing with these big skagit lines and they've got this white mouse and they're stomping. Fish don't care. They're aggressive. Steelhead are stupid. I hear that all the time. Nope, can't so, use a schedule line. Yes, and living in Australia half the year and being in New Zealand all the time, you cannot cast on top of fish's heads. No, even the ripping of a skagit line. Is like, you know, it's like everybody thinks a spay cast has to be performed on the water. If you have the room to cast overhead, do it. Quiet, stealthy, right? Do you think we catch less fish by fishing the spay cast, especially with all these waterborne anchors? Do you think that maybe one of the reasons why the guys back in the day were so successful with their single hand rods? And long belly lines and, and small flies was not so much that there were more fish around and less pressure, but that they simply had more stealth. So, most of my dry fly fish come on a single hand rod. Okay, got does it. That, does that answer your question? It does answer my question. Yes, give me a good old fashioned single spay or an overhead cast anytime. 
I would imagine I never have, but you have, but Atlantic Salmon Fishermen Guides, if you can cast overhead, I'm pretty sure they want you to do that, right? Well, that's traditionally how they did it. Right. I mean, except for, of course, of course they spay cast, and Alexander Grant, and um, I mean, they did a lot of spay casts, but just because a rod, that's why we call them double hand rods, not spay rods, because even though there's a second bit of cork there on the butt, a lot of those guys were doing straight pickup and lay down casts with their double hand rods, as you know. Yeah. Yeah, so they were not making a big commotion on the water, especially with Atlantic salmon. What's wrong with clear water steelhead? I think they get a little, like, grouchy. Yeah. So you had said earlier that when one of the fish gets a little bitey, the rest of the school tends to get a little bitey, or not even bitey, but interested as well. Is it the same thing with fear? If one gets freaked out, do they all get freaked out? Usually. Okay. Well, they get nervous. Yeah. So usually they lay, they'll, if you have a static fish, mm-hmm. they'll lay nose to tail, nose to tail. And it, that that's an indication that they're static? They'll be tough. Like if they're laying along a ledge and they're nose to tail, nose to tail. Right. Or then they say they open up like a picket fence. What does that mean? It means that they're like side by side. Okay. Game on. Really? Oh my God, this is interesting. Okay. Game on. Okay, so if they're side by side. Game on. But if... Okay, why? Because they all want a piece of the action. Wow. That is really interesting. Okay, what else freaks them out? So casting on top of their heads. Is there such thing as fishing a fly that's too big? Does that ever freak them out? Absolutely. Have, what do you, have you found a commonality? Is there something that's, that's too big? You know, everybody started out, and like I said, because our mentors were from the West Coast, we all thought that space, you know, Spay flies had to be big. Mm. One thing Great Lakes guys are really good at is stealing other techniques and adjusting to our technique. And they're already talented anglers, so it's scary. We're really good anglers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, yeah, we might not develop the wheel and we might not be the first guys on the block to make all this cool fly fishing stuff. But God forbid you give us the tools in our hand it's going to get really adjusted perfectly for our situation. Right. And we get on it. We, we get on it. And uh, so that's not, it's, I've been going smaller and smaller. Small, no matter what, if, if, if the water clarity allows me, small. Yeah. Hook, better hookups too. You and me both, we're on the same page with yeah. that. Better hookups. So many big flies are great. Yeah, it's a great rip and it's a great, great to get that big player. Problem is like, generally... It doesn't get hooked up. Yeah. Do you think they're leader shy at all? No. So the dog leash. Wait, what's dog leash? The dog leash is how far from the sink tip to the fly. That's what you call it? The dog leash. But a leader, you mean? Yeah. You call that a dog leash? Yeah. Why? You're walking the dog, aren't you? I sp- No. You're walking the fly. So if you're fishing a, a bucket? Yeah. I'm going to tie that fly on the end of the sink tip if I could. Okay. Because I know, I want the fly to follow the sink tip. If I have a run that's broad and bouldery all the way across, open up the dog leash. Give it about three, four feet. So around here, we have really Clackamas River. Any of those really ledgy rivers goes from, say, maybe two foot right into the bucket. If you got three foot, it ain't going to get in the wheelhouse real fast, is it? No. But what about fishing a weighted fly? Too snaggy. I don't fish weighted flies much. What if you turn... And I'm just playing devil's advocate. Yeah. I don't either, but... What you don't you, either. Weighted flies? No, yeah. I never have. Me been. neither. No, I always fish unweighted flies. <laughs> mm. Yeah. We can talk about it. Okay. But some people, because uh, I we have this 
argument all the time at home. I don't fish weighted flies, and I fish a, I do fish usually not that much heavier than like a type 6 if I'm fishing a tip, and I don't fish a weighted fly. And a lot of the guys argue me that they fish weighted flies. I argue snags. They say that they tie it so that their hook sits upright, or their hook point sits upright, and then it's fewer snags. What do you think about that? I don't want to fish behind you. (laughs) (laughs) That's for sure. um, So if I know the fish, the only time I would ever fish a weighted fly, if I know the fish is right off the ledge. That would be the only time. And then I would expect that once it got off the ledge and started progressing towards this, like farther away from the seam on the dangle, expect a snag or expect something bad to happen. No chase, something bad. But I would say that most of the time I would rather go with a short, mm-hmm. unweighted fly. I have more options. Yeah. Heavy tip, muscle it right through. You can muscle the heavy tip right through. If it's a lighter tip, you can do more options. A weighted fly... High rod, low rod, doesn't matter. It's going to get pricky on you. Even with the hookup, it's still going to get pricky. Mm-hmm. And when it gets pricky, it doesn't look like a swung fly. And I just get really tired of my leader getting dragged and stuck between rocks. So talk to me about your leader length. I, I know that's one of those stupid questions that I swore this podcast would never be about. I would never ask your favorite dry fly. I would never ask stupid questions about casting. And I would never ask anything about leader length. But with you... 14 inches. I need to know. All right. 14 inches. So you do fish about a foot? Yep. Huh. Is there ever such... Talk to me. Tell me one more time when you would fish a three-foot leader. Big, broad tail outs. Then I know that it starts at two and a half foot to three and a half foot back up to two and a half foot. Where their fish could be anywhere. Scattered fish across a boulder field, a rock. It doesn't matter. Some place that I know that I'm searching, that I don't... That I have control from... I have control from the beginning of the cast to the end of the to the end of the dangle right at my boot. I have control, but anytime I don't have control, I need to get control by shortening up. Do you put your rod tip where you think your fly is during the swing? During the swing, I probably move my rod ten times from left to right to up to down, all over. And then even at the end, I'll do the Atlantic salmon trick in the winter. So you put an inside end to it to keep the fly moving. Yeah. So people that don't fish a swung fly like they would an indicator every cast and, ex- and, and expect to do it, isn't, it, isn't, a, isn't our lines a, a giant indicator? That's what I say. It is honestly, especially a Skagit line, is like a 26-foot long dink float. That's all it is. That's why I go insane when people are... Uh, when people are over-mending their float and constantly popping things, I mean, any, let me explain. Anybody who's ever fished on the West Coast and started with bait, for example, we always fished what's called a dink float. It's like a six-inch long white styrofoam float. And when you're center pinning, every single mend counts with that monofilament to adjust that float so that your bait goes through the run where it should. And I associate the Skagit line as being a long dink float. And that's why I'm always trying to work my monofilament or my running line to work that Skagit line. But it drives me batty when guys are, are constant. I'm going to stop. Continue where, where you were. You're exactly right. So we catch our most fish on a swung fly when we're not engaged to the head. So when, you- you're, you're, wait, when you're saying engaged, you mean? Steering it. 
if you're raising the rod, somehow you have to manipulate the rod mm-hmm. on the swing that the he- head is fishing the fly. Right. So my, and that's what I was kind of dragging out there is I like to try to mend my running line and maybe the first three or four feet of my skagit line. But very rarely will you see me throw a mend over and over again through that running line. You can't. It's the working. So the working end's the fly, and the rudder is the back end, and you're the captain of the ship. That is an excellent analogy. Okay, so, wow, so you think the same way. I'm not insane. No, you're the captain of the ship, and then the rudder, you're guiding the rudder with your rod tip, inside rod to the inside of the river, slow it down, high rod higher, a little faster, Confused current, high rod, rod left to the inward bank, faster, steering it, pulling it through, muscle through the tip. Just the rod position, even angler position. How about changing your hand from right hand to left hand? Well, that is fascinating that you just mentioned that because Will Bush (laughs) mentioned that to me not that long ago. It was just two years ago. I do it all the time. You crafty guys. Okay. What you said earlier just a minute ago was interesting about having a downstream, a small downstream belly, even when you're in starting to swing into your dangle. And that's an old grease lining technique by having that downstream belly to really help aid or have the current help aid set that hook into a fish, especially when it's biting on the hang down. Do you find success in that? I do. That's the hardest part, you know, the hook up. You can step into them. You can swing. I was going to ask you, do you step into them? You can step into them. You can try to loop. But let's face it, that's the most frustrating one. And it just, it's hard. So you can swing for the fences if you feel like it. You can put that little extra speed to it to make them commit. Mm -hmm. But I will say if you're fishing by yourself, if you pick a little more aggressive wade line and hold the rod to the inside after you do that, they'll usually get on a little bit better. How do you know you're not stepping on the fish? Are you making sure your fishing runs where they're not in that wade line? Well, at that point... At that point... Your fly's already swung through it. Your fly swung through it, and I'm not coming through again. And my partner... I don't have a partner at that point. Okay, that's why you said alone, right? Yes. So not only are you swinging to a dangle that's parallel with your... Or that is, you know, opposite yourself. You are swinging... You are bringing that rod tip all the way in, even past where you're standing in in, in your wade line, if you will. And then when it comes Mm. back around, you're still giving it chase. So you're maneuvering your whole body. So basically, you're standing out aggressively in the wade line. You fish where you... You've got your fly where you think the fish are. Yep. And let's say you're 40 feet up from the bank. You're now going to maneuver your entire body and swing that rod tip all the way into the shore to make sure that you haven't missed anything. Correct. You are a fishy guy. You know that? Well, you yeah. guess you guess you know a lot about fishy, but... When you're on the river a whole lot and you don't catch a lot of fish and you finally figure out like, hey, guess what? I caught a fish doing that. Mm. But you can only do a few of these things when you're fishing by yourself. Okay. You know, you don't want to have like, or even if you have a partner, one one non-aggressive wade line. And then if you don't plan on coming, get on out there. In the wintertime, where all the fish come from? The dangle, right? Yeah, a lot of them. Correct. Or in that trophy stuff you're talking about which usually is a little deeper isn't it yeah yeah the second guy through usually catches most of the fish so i always wait for the first guy to go through because he's kind because he's always on the beach they're not going to chase it under the beach so if you wait you come in behind your buddy and you go a little deeper it's on the hang down 
And if you're really patient, you'll probably get a few more fish that day. I still don't want to fish behind you. Ever. <laughs> I don't want to fish behind you. <laughs> well, we'll just never yeah. fish together. Yeah, great. Fine. Yes. <laughs> um, is there anything on the West Coast that you're seeing with anglers that you feel is maybe not as efficient as it could be? Um, you know what I found is that uh, maybe because um, I don't live there is that um, they're pretty content with like fish a dry fly in the morning and then uh, uh, you know maybe a little bit and then they go home. But it just could be there just because they, they, that's their local thing. But not really. There are some really super fishy guys out there. And I'm blessed that like they them to like give me the roadmap to success. That's what's pretty cool. It's like, hey, hey, Jeff, here's the road map. We've got it pretty well mapped out. You just might need to put a few crossroads on it. That's all. And I'm like, oh, thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, you know some pretty good people, too. No, I don't know them. I just, like, read a bunch and listen to them. And, you know, it's like good mentors, you know? Yeah. So what's next for you? Me? Fish every day if I can. I don't know. I would like to, uh, like you, find other really cool waters when I go around a bend and the fish are really tough to catch. And I get get skunked. Because if I get skunked, I learn more. Yeah, I don't mind getting skunked anymore. If I catch a bunch of fish, we don't learn anything, do we? No, not really, honestly. If I catch one, it's great. But if I catch one and get a couple ass handed to me, that's really good fishing. And a good fishing part. I need to find a... A really good fishing partner. Preferably a single Canadian, five foot six, hot, fish loving woman. I'm all in. Yeah, that sounds bad. That sounds like I just hit on you. Yes. No. But I'm not. No. So you need one of your girlfriends. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Cheers, Cheers, my friend. Awesome. And that's that. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please be sure to take a moment to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes. It truly makes my day when I read them. Thank you so much for listening.